KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Joe Biden will be inaugurated as President of the United States on Wednesday. He will take power in the middle of a pandemic. He will take power two weeks after a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. How will all this change the ceremony we see? Have we ever seen an inauguration under circumstances like this? Lots of questions surrounding the inauguration. For some answers, we reached out to Dr. Bill Rosenberg. He is a professor of political science at Drexel University. Really interesting conversation. Check it out. We are seeing an incredible level of security surrounding the inauguration of Joe Biden on Wednesday, uh, obviously in response to what we saw at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. Is this unprecedented? Have we seen levels of security like this before? Because we've inaugurated presidents in wars and depressions and, and, and all that. But have we ever seen anything like this? This is a truly unique situation in the sense that there's always security around the president and vice president anyway. And at a national ceremony, it actually escalates all the time as well. But what we're seeing the week after the storming of the Capitol by a lot of uh, right-wing extremists is truly remarkable. What's happening, though, is I think that we're confronted with a, with a dilemma. You know, Joe Biden wants to go forward with the larger scale inauguration, not quite like we've had in the past with Trump and Obama, but at the same time recognizes that we have a coronavirus that's uh, wreaking havoc on the country and you want to have social distancing. And we also have the threat of insurrection potentially happening again. And Biden has stated that he's going to follow the directions of the security people. And if they say it's safe to do, then he's going to move forward with it. But nonetheless, it's certainly going to be different. One of the principal differences, though, is that this year we have 25,000 National Guards troops called up to provide security at the inauguration. We've seen basically the development of what's equivalent to the green zone in Iraq, where there's a five square mile area where no one can go in except for the Supreme Court members of Congress and their, their guests at the swearing in. And I think that we also have that huge unscalable fence that's around, which in many ways I think gives a negative portrayal of the United States as being an armed camp where basically, while we have democracy here, we basically are, I don't want to use the word police state, but it appears to be a military police state with all of this security, which is really unfortunate. And I think part of this also reflects on what's going to happen as a result of this militarization of the inauguration. Certainly, people are not going to be able to storm the stage and go after Biden. I just don't see that as a possibility. But many people are probably still going to have very, um, uh, I don't want to use the word violent, but very extreme protests with signs and with clamoring and with maybe even trying to bust through the fence. And I think that imagery doesn't serve the United States as uh, long-term goals of being an open and free society. Yeah, to that point, that was kind of my next question. Uh, there's a, a push-pull here. On one hand, 
in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of social unrest, in the midst of political insurrection, we are still having a transfer of power, and that is a a good sign. It's a strong sign. On the other hand, to your point, it does have a police state. It's fair. The fact that we're making fair comparisons to the U.S. and Iraq with regards to a green zone. Where do you balance those? Is it a net negative, net positive? Well, my personal position is that I thought that Joe Biden should not have moved forward with this inauguration in the way it's being structured today. I think that we have political history on the side that it does not have to be on the Capitol steps. If we go back to the fourth inauguration of FDR, he was actually inaugurated at the White House. Um, Joe Biden could have had his inauguration at the White House, either in the Oval Office or actually on the on the, the patio or steps where we saw Donald Trump return from Walter Reed Military Hospital, where he addressed the public uh, and had some chairs out on the lawn and had all of the media basically cover it. That would have been much safer for everyone, safer for the president and vice president, safer for all the members of Congress, and safer for the media. Now, we have to realize that we're in extraordinary times. We're seeing news reports now where the National Guard troops are having background checks to make sure that there's no insurrectionists in the crowd, with the fear, basically, that some of them may turn on the president. And we have to realize that internationally, we have seen situations like this, for example, with Anwar Sadat in Egypt, you know, where the security detail could become an armed force against the political leader. The other thing that I think we have to recognize is that Joe Biden did not bring this to the fore. This happened because of Donald Trump's inciting of these right-wing groups of which now we're learning the names of more than just uh, a couple that have been surfacing in the past. But now we're learning about this political movement of several groups all over the United States. And I think that what we are facing is something that's not going to happen just on Inauguration Day. We're not going to have fences all over Washington with 25,000 troops all of the time. But nonetheless, we're still going to have these individuals, which are numbering probably, if not in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps in the millions of people that want to have anti-government activities ongoing. These people are not going away. They're going to have their day in which they're going to go to the 50 state capitals, but it's not just going to be on Inauguration Day. So we have to find a better solution on how to deal with this rather than simply generating an armed encampment to have a ceremony that basically is one paragraph long, the reading, essentially, of the oath of office. You talk about how there have been uh, inaugurations in different spots. Um, has the the actual ceremony changed much over the years, or what we see now, for the most part, what we saw 200 years ago? Well, I think the ceremony has become much more involved in the sense that now it's a all-day and evening event, uh, but the foundational part of the inauguration is the president being asked to recite the oath of office and the vice president doing the same thing. We have seen for, for numerous years the president using that as an opportunity to give a speech, 
their inauguration speech. And you can go online or listeners can go online and just Google presidential inauguration speeches. And you can see that some of them were really short. I think George Washington's speech was something like 127 words. And then you have other people that have given 10,000 word uh, inauguration speeches. This is really the president's opportunity when they're just stepping in the office to make a political statement about what they hope America is going to be and what America can become. And in many ways, it's a, an enlarged version of what we call the State of the Union speech. Most times when presidents get inaugurated for the first time, they don't do another State of the Union speech a week or so later. This sort of replaces that. But, you know, we look back on history, you look at JFK, in which he sort of made the challenge of getting a man on the moon. These are sort of uplifting moments to sort of build the consciousness of the country towards uniting and sort of making aspirational uh, attainments possible. And I think that's really where we grow. If we take a look, though, there's also the change in terms of the inauguration you know, in the past, uh, for for probably the last hundred years or so, uh, assuming there was a, a transfer of power from a sitting president, in other words, no one died, um, the outgoing president would generally ride in either a carriage or with the president in the same car up to the Capitol. They would give the speech at the inauguration, and then they would drive back to the White House. There's about a five-hour period of time where there's a changeover in the White House between the outgoing administration and the incoming. Much of this has already been accomplished with a lot of boxes being moved out of the White House the last day or so. But Joe Biden's going to take basically his, his occupation of a new home, the people's house, the White House. And I think what we're going to see is that there's going to be a, a processional of sorts going from the Capitol to the White House although this year it's going to be very different because of security. In fact, even the issue about security for Joe Biden, he would have probably liked to have traveled from Wilmington, Delaware, on the train like he did for decades to go down to the Senate. He probably would have preferred to take the same, the same train down to Washington for his inauguration. But the Secret Service said that's a no-go because of security concerns. The same thing happens with the parade going from the Capitol to the White House. Joe Biden would probably be in the, the image of Jimmy Carter, who was the first president who jumped out of his car and walked the distance between the White House, excuse me, the Capitol and the White House. Joe Biden, while physically fit, is under security concerns, not going to be able to do that. And I think what we're going to see is that the Biden inauguration committee is going to put together alternatives to give us a sense of the strength of America and different images of people across America all excited about the new inauguration of President Biden. And we'll see that later today on TV. President Trump will not be attending. I don't think anyone that's been paying attention should be surprised by this. And while in recent history it's kind of jarring, but there is precedent. This hasn't always been... Uh, all smiles and rainbows, right? We've had presidents not come to their successor's inauguration in the past, correct? Well, the first notable one was John Adams. Uh, when he left office and Thomas Jefferson was coming in, 
uh, they didn't get along and, and Adams did not go to the inauguration. But that's rather an outlier than the, the, the norm. Uh, most presidents uh, welcome the, the president and uh, elect and, and, and uh, first lady to the White House to meet and to discuss sort of what it's like to live in the White House and to get a sense of where the cupboards are and who you call and things like that. Um, the president sort of has private meetings with the president-elect. None of this happened. None of it. And that's tied to the fact that Donald Trump did not want to concede the election. He did not want to cooperate with the transition process. And as a result, none of this happened. At the vice presidential level, just yesterday or the day before was the first time that Vice President Pence reached out to Vice President-elect Harris to sort of congratulate her on her victory. Uh, but, you know, it's a sad state where, where we're supposed to have an orderly, peaceful transfer of power that the individuals involved can't even speak to each other. And not only can't they speak to each other, they, they upend the whole transition process, which basically puts the Biden administration uh, behind the eight ball and trying to be on the ground running on uh, the day after the inauguration. To that point, I would guess we're quite fortunate then that this is not, say, the the Jimmy Carter administration that is kind of far into Washington and coming in uh, at ground zero. I mean, Joe Biden, creature of the Senate, eight years as vice president. Yes, he didn't get the cooperation he should get, but is it mitigated a bit with someone like Biden coming in because of all his experience? Well, first of all, he doesn't need an introduction to the White House. He, he was there a lot with, uh, with President Obama. Secondly, I think you make a very good point that his ability to be on the ground running is enhanced by who he's chosen to be part of his inner team, uh, his chief of staff, uh, Ron Klain and his choices of cabinet secretaries are all experienced hands in government. Many of them, large number of them were actually in the Obama administration. So they know what's involved in taking over uh, in a new administration and basically steering the course of the bureaucratic operations across the country. Uh, Tony Blinken, for example, is a secretary of state nominee. Um, he's been in the State Department for a very long time. He knows world leaders. He's engaged with Joe Biden on these types of issues over time. You look at Janet Yellen. She's going back to her position in government, helping to manage the economy. So what happens is he's bringing not an inexperienced team, but a very experienced team that he's closely worked with. You know, we just have to go back four years to hear the statements that Donald Trump made about how he was going to drain the swamp and how he was going to bring the best people to Washington. And I'm going to leave it to your listeners to decide whether or not he did drain the swamp and whether or not he did bring the best to Washington to serve the American people. Uh, I'm not really interested in making a political statement on that. I think each person should use their own judgment about that decision. Given what we saw with the violence at the Capitol, given, frankly, the behavior of President Trump during this lame duck period, 
given everything we faced from all different angles, do you anticipate a discussion going forward in a change in the transition period, a shortening of it, any changes to the nuts of bolts of how we put this together? Are we, I understand why the transition's so long because government, it's a lot and it takes a lot to hand the baton off, even in the best of times. But what we've seen and experienced the last three months, do you think we could see some conversations about if this is the best way to go forward? Well, I think we have to look at history with regards to the change between administrations. Early on in our nation's history, the inauguration didn't happen until April. So we had a constitutionally mandated election for president uh, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And then it wasn't until April where the new president was sworn in and the new cabinet came. Part of this was, you know, the horse and buggy period where someone maybe came from Kansas or California or wherever. They had to travel all the way across the country. They had to bring their furniture, their clothes, their families. So there were some practical aspects of this, although most of them weren't from the far west. Most of the early presidents were from the East Coast. But after a while, the uh, leaders of the country decided that that was not a good move. And they moved it to March, and that shortened the time period. But then over time, we've moved it from March to January, okay? And I would just, for your listeners, have you think about the fact that if we use the original dates, we would still be looking at Donald Trump being president of the United States until mid-April. So all of the the, uh, problems that we're facing would only have been prolonged. In today's modern world, you could almost make the position that perhaps the changeover should happen within a week of the election. The problem with that is that the election wasn't even declared over during that first week. You know, we watch on TV, all the major news channels are doing their great wall where they're showing the electoral college vote and the popular vote. But this year, 2020, saw an election that was very uh, challenged, um, particularly by those who wanted to preserve the election for Donald Trump. And as a result, a week would be much too short. If we had a parliamentary system rather than a presidential system, we probably could turn things around quicker also, because the members of a prime minister's cabinet would simply be members of the parliament, members of what we would think of as like our House and Senate. They'd already be office holders, and they would come step in and just start running the government again. So we have some structural issues in terms of timing and also in terms of structure that sort of limit this. But the other thing we have to realize that that I don't see covered much in the media is the issue about the confirmations that have to occur. Uh, for the cabinet, and also the issue that's related to this about the impeachment of Donald Trump. Many people are arguing, well, why isn't um, Mitch McConnell doing something about this confirmation process, but even more so with regards to the trial, the Senate trial of Donald Trump? For those that are on the Democratic side, I would suggest that really wouldn't make too much sense, because We had two elections in Georgia that elected uh, Democrats to the United States Senate. 
those individuals are not yet seated in the Senate because they have to be confirmed in terms of the electoral process in Georgia. They have to be presented to, to the Senate for acceptance. So the latest date that will happen is January 22nd, 2021. So anyone that's in a rush to have cabinet appointees done immediately or an impeachment trial to start, they ought to rethink the fact that they probably would prefer the the Senate Majority Leader to be um, uh, Senator Schumer, and they would like to have those other two votes so that the Democrats would have the majority. So there are some timing issues, some structural issues that often don't get thought about, but should be. Past the inauguration, Joe Biden has laid out a bold plan in the short term. He will have a Democratic House of Representatives, 50-50, but obviously Vice President Harris will be the tiebreaker, so he has a Democratic Senate by the slimmest of margins. How realistic do you think, or I shouldn't say how realistic, how much do you think Joe Biden will be able to get done here in the short term? Uh, will he get a bit of a grace period from Republicans where maybe he will get votes that he wouldn't get a year or two from now? Or do you think we will see a lot of the obstructionism, which has kind of become part and parcel for the Republican Party? Well, I think uh, Joe Biden will be very successful at changing the trajectory of our political system on day one. He is going to sign a series of executive orders, including joining, rejoining the, the climate change uh, protocols, sort of reengaging us with the Iran, the Iran deal, with um, issuing orders uh, that are going to deal with a variety of issues, including uh, removing the Muslim ban uh, that President Trump put in place. So executive orders are some uh, is a process by which the president can affect immediate change. He doesn't have to get Congress to approve it. Uh, And it has the force of law as long as he is president of the United States. And the classic example of that is that Donald Trump put in the Muslim travel ban without Congress basically voting on it. And it had the effect of law, even though it took him three or four times with his bans to pass constitutional muster. Now, the issue about cooperation across the aisles, from my perspective, I just don't see it. Uh, you know, you have a United States Senate that's going to still be led on the Republican side by Mitch McConnell, who was basically the author of no to everything. And I think that that will still be in place. Um, I think that Chuck Schumer is going to become very frustrated in the sense that he's going to have to hold a Democratic caucus in the Senate. And Nancy Pelosi is going to have to hold it in the House. And I think while the numbers are there, it's not going to be an easy thing to do. You know, you have senators like um, Manchin from West Virginia, who, while he is a Democrat, comes from a very, very red state. And he has political aspirations, I believe, to run for governor of the state. So he's not going to want to antagonize a lot of the voters from that state. So he may stray from time to time. So it may not be 50 Democratic senators plus Harris. They may lose a couple of votes. Now, granted, they may gain some like from Mitt Romney or others, but it's not quite so clear cut. In the House, Nancy Pelosi is operating with a very razor thin advantage in terms of Democratic House members. 
we have to realize that 140 Republican members of the House voted to join that Texas lawsuit, claiming that the election was was fake. It was rigged. It was not a free and fair election. So those individuals are not going to work with Biden at all. Okay, you have basically with the narrow uh, advantage that they have in the House, they're going to have to hold all of those House members in their caucus uh, to make sure that they can move their policies forward. So I think all of the political leaders on the Democratic side have major challenges to be able to move the political agenda in the direction that they want. And we also are going to see Republican leaders like Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, who are going to be obstructionists, hoping that they can slow down or derail politics and get to 2022, in which they might be able to win a couple of seats for their side and change the balance of power between the branches of government. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 